So welcome to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. My name is Aaron Bauer, one of the neurology residents here at Yale New Haven Hospital. Today, we will be joined by Dr. Sarah Schaefer, one of our illustrious movement disorders uh, docs here at the hospital. Our plan for today will be to do a bit of a deep dive on the medications that we use in the management of Parkinson's disease. Good afternoon, Dr. Schaefer. Thank you for having me on again. I'm excited to be here. Of course, it's always a pleasure having you on. Definitely one of the subjects in neurology that I could use more refreshers on more frequently. So always a pleasure to have you provide a little bit of light on what can be a somewhat confusing subspecialty of neurology at times. I love to make it more approachable. (laughs) All right. So the plan for today is we're going to go through some of the major drug classes and drugs that we use in treatment and management of Parkinson's disease. I think some of the big boxes that we'll cover will obviously be some of our dopamine precursors like Cinemet, which I imagine most of our listeners will have some familiarity with. Then the dopamine receptor agonists, the MAOB inhibitors, the COMPT inhibitors as well, and then a myriad of other agents, including some of the anticholinergics and some of the newer medications that have come onto the market. Does that sound like a good plan to you, Dr. Schaefer? Sounds like a plan. All right. Well, since it's probably the one that most people are familiar with, how about we start by talking a little bit about Cinemet? Yeah, let's talk about Cinemet. So Cinemet is basically the most effective medicine that we have for Parkinson's disease, and it's the oldest one as well. Uh, It's been around since the 60s. It is a combination of two medications. The first is carbidopa and the second is levodopa. So it's carbidopa, levodopa. And when you see the dosages, you'll see two numbers. So for example, 25, 100, where carbidopa is 25 milligrams and levodopa is 100 milligrams. Now, levodopa is the active ingredient in Cinemet. It's a precursor, as you said, to dopamine. So it's L-DOPA and it swims around in your periphery and then crosses the blood-brain barrier and there is transitioned into dopamine for your brain to use. And carbidopa prevents that levodopa from being broken down in the periphery. So it inhibits the enzyme that breaks down levodopa in the periphery. Now, this is important because when levodopa is broken down in the periphery, it causes horrible nausea and also doesn't help with your Parkinson's symptoms because it's not affecting the brain. And so levodopa was originally given in monstrous doses to patients Uh, because only some small percentage was getting into the brain and helping with symptoms and patients had horrendous nausea. And then when carbidopa was was added, it made cinemet, which if you think about it etymologically is cinemet. So without emesis, because patients stop throwing up. So Cinemet comes in a lot of different formulations. The immediate release formulation, just plain old Cinemet is uh, what we generally use the most, but it comes in CR or controlled release formulations. It comes in combined capsules of immediate and extended release. It comes in enteral suspensions. So there is something called levodopa intestinal infusion, which is through a GJ tube that is uh, that it's used for medication administration. And so that's a continuous levodopa infusion to help with things like motor fluctuations and dyskinesias, which we can talk about. 
And there are even formulations like intranasal Cinemat and continuous subcutaneous Cinemat that are that are in trials and, and potentially will be available soon to patients. So a lot of what we do is think about the pharmacokinetics of levodopa and the various formulations and do very good histories of our patients to figure out how long does it take to kick in, how long does it last before it wears off. And using that in order to make adjustments and switch between formulations to best control the patient's symptoms of Parkinson's without causing dyskinesias or extra involuntary movements from the medication that can be uh, distressing or bothersome to the patient. Other side effects to think about. So I talked about nausea and if there is nausea with Cinemet, we often will add extra carbidopa. So there are carbidopa tablets that are sold independently. And in the US, these are unfortunately quite expensive, but you always want to think about how much carbidopa the patient is getting if they're having nausea and you can increase the carbidopa side of that ratio in order to combat that nausea. And this is also important when you look at these two numbers, 2,500 is one that I mentioned. That's a normal first pass pill that we give to patients. There's also 10, hundred, which as you can tell has less carbidopa. It has 15 milligrams, less carbidopa. I never use that medication because it's more likely to cause nausea and, and then other formulations, 25 to 50 for this, for the CR or long acting formulations, there's 5,200, there's 2,500. And so it, you know, it can get very confusing and uh, without even adding all of the other medication classes that we use for Parkinson's disease, just looking at levodopa, it can get confusing. One thing that I do want to mention and uh, Aaron, I'm sorry, I'm talking uh, a lot uh, without <laughs> allowing you to ask me any more questions. But one thing I do want to mention is that there's something called a levodopa equivalent. And that's because carbidopa, levodopa, and any of these medications don't have equal bioavailability. So regular Cinemet, carbidopa, levodopa, immediate release equals 100 milligrams in terms of the levodopa equivalent. It's considered to have 100% bioavailability, whereas the CR formulation might be in the 70 to 80% range. Ritari is also uh, not 100% bioavailable. The uh, enteral suspensions are 100% bioavailable. And so if you have patients on combinations of medications that are very complicated, what you can do is look up levodopa equivalent calculator or if you know these bioavailabilities, you can do the calculation yourself, or you can ask your friendly neighborhood pharmacist and try to figure out what their levodopa equivalent is. And that helps us as movement disorders neurologists understand with a standard dosing how much actual levodopa a patient is getting, not just in total milligrams that they're you know, putting into their mouth, but in what's actually bioavailable. And it's very helpful for people who may not be movement disorders, neurologists who might be inpatient um, neurologists or, or other providers when something isn't available or, oh, this patient has an NG tube and you can't crush CR and you can't crush Ritari. How much 
of the regular Cinemet should we give this patient to give them an equal levodopa equivalent while they're in the hospital? So yeah, I covered a lot. (laughs) Well, I think you did a wonderful summary of what can be a surprisingly complicated medication, just given all the different formulations. And I will say in clinic, it is always very interesting watching you all go through. And I will say the movement patients and particularly Parkinson's patients and their families know their medications very well. Oh, they <laughs> Down sure to the do. Minute that it's administered for exactly these reasons. And they're uh, enormously compliant because they wear off and then they're uncomfortable. So if they miss a dose or they're late, it's a problem. I, I do want to mention a couple other side effects with levodopa. I, nausea came up and dyskinesia. So these extra movements that can happen once somebody has had Parkinson's for a long time when they take levodopa therapy. Also, orthostasis can worsen with levodopa therapy, and this can definitely be a problem in our Parkinson's patients. And uh, at higher doses or in particularly vulnerable patients, hallucinations and psychotic symptoms. And finally, fatigue. There is a subset of patients that I have that 30 minutes after they take levodopa, they get exhausted and they have to lie down. And fatigue is common in Parkinson's, but if it has that very clear temporal correlation with the medication, it may be medication induced. Well, I think that was a very good summary of the side effects, especially things that, you know, we may not always be counseling as regularly on these patients, especially because we're usually not the ones initiating them. So thank you for that reminder, particularly the orthostasis, which I feel like can be very difficult in these patients at baseline. Yeah. Sometimes you have to get the orthostatic symptoms under control before you prescribe levodopa. So it can be a barrier. Now, in terms of one thing, maybe I want to get your clarification on when you see these patients in clinic and you're trying to make a good understanding of their off and on time, what, what symptoms are you really trying to pay attention or will it vary based on the patient coming in? It's, it's highly variable. So Many patients have motor offs where they start freezing, you know, they can't move their feet, they're shuffling, they get stiff and uncomfortable, their tremor comes back, you know, all those motor symptoms that you associate with Parkinson's disease. Plenty of patients have non-motor offs. They get anxious, they get exhausted, some have sensory symptoms. There are all kinds of things that can happen when somebody is turning off And there are some things like dystonia that can either be an on symptom or an off symptom, and it can be hard to tease it out. Some patients, when they turn off, they get really dystonic in their foot, for example. And some people, for some people, that's a peak dose effect that's related to dyskinesias. It's a, you know, dyskinesias include kind of choreiform type movements, but also dystonic movements at times. And for on symptoms, It's important to ask about dyskinesias, but it's also nice to ask the other person in the room, you know, the, uh, the spouse or the care partner about dyskinesias, because it is common that patients won't notice it very much. And, and it's not something that I do anything about if it's not bothersome, but it's also, it's good to know, especially if you're thinking about increasing the medication. I think that's a really, a really fair point. I would say most patients definitely in the Parkinson's clinics, they always have their one caregiver who's coming along with them. So having their insights is always very helpful. Super essential. All right. So I think that was a really great discussion, at least going through the basics of Cinemet. So our carbidopa, levodopa formulations, we were able to talk about the different types, 
be it immediate release, which is kind of our bread and butter, and then more controlled release, extended releases, and also these more nuanced ones, be it like the intestinal gels and subcutaneous preparations. We also were able to talk a little bit about levodopa equivalents and their kind of important clinical role in terms of figuring out how much levodopa a patient is actually getting and some of the calculators that may be available for people to use a little bit more clinically in situations where their home preparations may not be accessible. And we were able to cover some of the side effects and ways in which we can gauge how well the medications are working based on their off symptoms and their on symptoms. So I think that was a really great summary and overview of a very important medication. So yeah, let me go through the dopamine agonist. So the oldest one is apomorphine. That is a medication that's generally given subcutaneous, although just like levodopa infusions, I believe that apomorphine subcutaneous infusions are also being looked at with a pump. And then there are some other medications that are oral, or in one case, a patch, primipexol or mirapex, ropinirole or requip, and rotigotine or nupro. Nupro is the one that is a patch. And the other ones come in either immediate release or extended release formulations. They have variable effects on the D2, 3, and 4 receptors. They are direct receptor agonists for dopamine. So instead of replacing the actual neurotransmitter dopamine, as levodopa does, they act directly on the postsynaptic receptors to have their effect. And so it's common that we'll combine these different uh, mechanisms of action of medications in order to kind of what I say to patients is we're coming at it from all angles, <laughs> trying to trying to uh, in, interfere with the dysfunction of the physiology at, at each level. And it has some, these all have some of the same side effects as carbidopa levodopa, including orthostasis, fatigue, nausea, dyskinesias, but there are two things that we always ask about on patients uh, with patients on these medications. And that one is impulse control disorders. So impulsiveness and compulsiveness. So I generally avoid these medications in patients who have a history of addiction. If they have, a, you know, alcohol use uh, disorder history or gambling history, something like that, I will ask about that before I put patients on these medications. And there is a dose-dependent response where higher doses have more are more likely to cause these effects. But it's something that's very important to ask about and document each time you see the patient when they're on these medicines because it can ruin lives. You know, patients can can have sex addictions and. Um, and have problems in their marriage, they can gamble away all their money. They can gain a bunch of weight because they eat ice cream all the time, you know, and these can be problems. And then the other weird side effect that can happen in Parkinson's in general and can also happen on levodopa, but is far more common, not to say that it's very common, but far more common in dopamine agonists is something called sleep attacks, where patients just have to go to sleep right now. <laughs> and this can happen behind the wheel. It can happen in the middle of a conversation where they just fall asleep. And so I warn patients about this in advance. And 
it's not common enough that there's any recommendation about not driving or anything like that. But I tell them if this is happening to you at the dinner table or something, I need to know about it. And then we need to reduce your medicine so that we don't put you in a position where it happens when there's danger in that. So that's the other thing I always ask about and document every time I see a patient. All right. And maybe one question specifically for the dopamine receptor agonists, do you, do people generally use these as a first line or as an adjunct or is there any, or does that completely vary just based on practice? It completely varies based on practice. They are generally not used by most providers, I think, in older Parkinson's patients as a first line or as any medication or in patients who have cognitive problems or psychiatric disease that puts them at high risk for hallucinations and psychosis because they are more likely than carbidopa levodopa to cause those problems. So it's really the younger patient population that you're more likely to see these medications they are, are not as effective as carbidopa levodopa and their side effect profile is worse also, but some patients do use it in addition to carbidopa levodopa. Other patients go on this first and then add carbidopa levodopa later and uh, because of concerns by the patient and historical concerns, which, you know, we can get into this if you want about carbidopa levodopa, especially at high doses, causing earlier onset of dyskinesias. There was a big period of time where Cinemet was delayed as much as possible because there was a concern that patients would develop motor fluctuations, which means extra movements or dyskinesias when they're on and sudden turning off earlier the more Cinemet they're on, basically that Cinemet causes that problem. But it's become more, more of the state of affairs that we realize that d- disease duration has a bigger role in this. And so patients who've had the disease for many, many years, 10 years or something, and are put on Cinemet for the very first time can get dyskinesias. And obviously it wasn't Cinemet duration and, and long-term use that caused that problem. So And because it works the best with the least side effects, we want to make sure that patients are getting the best out of their lives when they're at their best, right? We want, I have a lot of patients who try to delay treatment because they don't want to start it until they absolutely have to, but in the meantime, they're sacrificing their quality of life. And so, you know, there's a lot of nuanced discussion with each individual patient. No, I appreciate you bringing up that discussion, particularly regarding when and how early to start Cinemet. I remember even in even in medical school hearing about that. And I think in clinical practice, we've really come a long way in terms of when to initiate and which medications to use. So I definitely think that's worth mentioning and for our listeners to hear. I think that really covered most of the dopamine receptor agonists. So the ones that directly affect the D2, D3, D4 receptors. Um, those names again, just for everyone to hear being primapexol, rapinerol, Ritigatine and apomorphine. And I think from a testing standpoint, one thing that does come up, and as you've already mentioned, is particularly the side effects for these. And I think you mentioned probably the two most testable ones that are a little bit more specific to these medications being both the sleep attacks and also the need to discuss impulse control disorders in these patients as well in the medications. So if that's the case, I think we can move on to our next class of medications 
the MAOB inhibitors. Great. So the next couple classes of medications are similar in that, you know, we have talked about directly replacing levodopa or dopamine with levodopa. We've talked about directly acting on dopamine uh, receptors with dopamine agonists. And what these next couple of medications do is they reduce the breakdown of dopamine so that dopamine that's there hangs out for longer. So that is also what carbidopa does, but carbidopa does that in the periphery, whereas these uh, next couple classes of medications do it in the central nervous system. So the MAOIs, monoamine oxidase inhibitors, <laughs> selegiline, rosagiline, and the newest one, safinamide, are the medications that fall into this category. There used to be a thought that these were non-selective monoamine oxidase inhibitors, meaning that they worked on both the A and B type receptors. And so there was more concern earlier on about serotonin syndrome when these were mixed with other serotonergic medications, but it's become clear that they're actually much more selective as MAOB inhibitors. And so the, you know, the concern about serotonin syndrome still exists, but is far less of a problem. So I do get, uh, I do get questions commonly from pharmacists and from patients. Can I be on this medication and an SSRI? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. A lot of my patients are on those combinations and you can tell them about the symptoms of serotonin syndrome just in case, but, but it's very, very uncommon. And these medications are generally pretty well tolerated. They're they are meant as therapy to, you know, if you have your own intrinsic dopamine still hanging around because you're very early in your Parkinson's course, they can be used as monotherapy, but they can also be used as adjunctive therapy to increase what we call on time, meaning the dopamine that's given to you by, for example, carbidopa levodopa isn't broken down as quickly when you're on this, these medications. They're pretty mild the effects that they have are pretty mild, but they are ubiquitous. And are the side effects pretty similar for these as well? I'd imagine so. Yeah, you're increasing dopamine. But again, because the effect is quite mild, the side effects are also quite mild. And the vast majority of my patients who come off of these medications come off for lack of effect rather than side effects. Or if they're late in disease, in order to simplify their medication regimen. Gotcha. That makes a ton of sense. Now, I guess in terms of the next medication class, we're going to be similarly talking about something that's meant to decrease kind of the breakdown and removal of dopamine. And this would be the COMP-T inhibitors. So let's see if I can say this. Catechol-O-methyltransferase inhibitors COMT inhibitors, so the big ones, and tacopone or COMTAN, and this can be combined with carbidopa levodopa into a combination pill that's called Stilevo, or it can be prescribed separately, and is meant to be taken with each dose of the carbidopa levodopa, unlike selegiline and rosagiline, which are taken once or twice a day. The COMT inhibitors are taken with each dose of carbidopa levodopa in order to decrease the breakdown of the dopamine in the system. And, you know, the oldest one is entacapone, and that's that's dose with each dose as opposed to opicapone, which is a newer one, uh, also called Ongentis, which is dosed nightly. I have to be honest with you. I 
I haven't prescribed a lot of these newer medicines, the safinamide and the opicapone, for example, as well as Nupro, because they are much more expensive. And it is not clear to me that they offer much benefit above and beyond the regular stuff, except for, you know, convenience. Uh, so I, you know, there is a time and place for all these medications, but I don't have much personal experience with them. And then, you know, for entacapone, one of the big side effects that we worry about, in addition to anything that you would think about with increased dopamine is diarrhea. It can cause really horrific diarrhea in some patients and that, that can limit its use. So we might use this medication, for example, in a patient who has to take Cinemet every four hours all day or every three hours all day, but they're really not making it to their next dose and adding additional doses through the day becomes unwieldy and, and burdensome. You can imagine trying to take a medication every two and a half hours. We might add entacapone to the, to each dose to try to increase the amount of time that that carbidopolivodopa lasts in their system so they don't have to take medication as often. And when you go about that kind of transition to adding on atacapone, will you generally just keep them at their regular dose interval or do you have to space it out a little bit more? I imagine there's probably a little bit of trial and error. Yeah, there's a little bit of trial and error, but usually we're adding it because they're not making it to their next dose. So we don't end up spacing it out more. What we do is we don't push the doses closer together we see how much the entacapone can give us in terms of extra on time. Gotcha. That makes a ton of sense. In terms of the last several classes, they're a little bit different. So they may not work clearly in a way that's directly related to dopamine. I think the next class that we'll talk about then will be some of our anticholinergic agents like trihexafenadyl, and benztropin. Yeah, so trihexyphenidyl or artine is a medication that's used for dystonia and also in Parkinson's disease. It's an anticholinergic medication, so it comes along with all the side effects of anticholinergic medications, right? So dry mouth, urinary retention, constipation, cognitive slowing, all of which can be issues in our Parkinson's patients, except dry mouth. Uh, they usually have drooling. The opposite problem. But so in terms of tolerance, it can be an issue. And then, and also in just like dopamine agonists, patients who are at higher risk of cognitive and psychotic symptoms, this is not a good medication for them. And, and if somebody comes to me with hallucinations or delusions or paranoia, and they're on an anticholinergic, it's the first to go followed by dopamine agonists. So the side effect profile is not great, but it is something that we do use for younger patients. It can be helpful for tremor. It can be helpful, helpful for dystonia. Benztropine is a pretty crummy anticholinergic medication. It's very mild as an anticholinergic, which is why psychiatrists put so many patients with schizophrenia and things on, on this medication because it doesn't worsen their psychiatric disease, but it also doesn't help that much with movement disorders. And so it's not something that I ever prescribe ever. Uh, uh, though a lot of my patients are on it from their psychiatrists, you know, it, it's used in acute movement disorder emergencies, like acute dystonic reaction or oculogyric crisis. And it works well in those settings, but not for chronic um, movement disorders, even if they're drug-induced. To my knowledge, there isn't really good data for that. 
And then I kind of lump amantadine into this anticholinergic category because it has anticholinergic effects, though it is a pretty dirty drug and it has a lot of different effects. It originally was a flu medication, actually, and then was repurposed for Parkinson's disease. And there is a, a long-acting version called Gokavri. That's a newer medicine, but amantadine itself is very old medication. I believe was even used before levodopa as were anticholinergics um, in Parkinson's. So I, I guess I misspoke. Levodopa was the first good medicine that was for Parkinson's, but before that, they just gave patients anticholinergics with, uh, with minimal effect. It is useful for Parkinson's symptoms, but what I often use it for is what it's FDA approved for. And it is the only FDA approved medication for this, uh, for dyskinesias. It's used for dyskinesias. It also has a big problem with hallucinations. And so in my older patients who have cognitive problems, it's, it's not a good choice. I think that there may be some data that Gokavri, because it's longer acting might have less of those problems. Uh, but I, I have to be honest, that also falls into the category of very expensive medication that I'm less likely to prescribe. So I don't know the data by heart. All right. So in terms of these kind of anticholinergic based agents, sounds like overall a go-to maybe in a younger patient, a lot of tremor um, where we're not as worried about the anticholinergic side effects, you could consider artane maybe a lot less in terms of thinking about benzodropin or congentin, um, but definitely something that would be seen in the movement disorder clinic in terms of patients perhaps coming with a more drug-induced Parkinsonism. And then in terms of amantadine being maybe a little bit lost to time, but not as good and overshadowed by Cinemat, but still pretty decent, at least, and particularly reducing dyskinesias. And I think there's only one medication left, which is a little bit new and is honestly one that I hadn't heard of before kind of looking through these medications a little bit more systematically. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Norians? That's correct. Norians. And I might even mispronounce the, the generic name, Istradephalin. Istradephalin. Um, so yeah, Norians, it's new and it's also a, a brand new mechanism of action. I think it's the first time we've had a brand new mechanism of action in movement disorders medications in a long time. Everything else that's come out has been kind of a repurpose of an old mechanism of action. Oh, there's a new MAOI and there's a new version of amantadine or levodopa, but um, but this is a first in class in Parkinson's and it's an adenosine A2A receptor antagonist. It actually has a pretty similar, but, but a bit more specific effect as caffeine. But I, I have looked at the literature recently and it does seem that with continuous use, it does have a more pronounced effect at the physiological level than daily caffeine use. And so it does seem at least on a physiological level, when you're looking at receptor blockade and things like that, that, that it does have more of an effect. And, and I don't know if that translates to more effect on Parkinson's symptoms, but it's being marketed as also a medication to, to decrease off time or increase on time. So like MAOIs, like entacapone and CompT inhibitors, it's used when patients are having too much off time 
in their day and the dopamine agonists or whatever else, you know, the levodopa formulations are just not either getting too unwieldy in terms of the amount of times they have to take it a day or just for whatever reason are just not lasting as long as they need to. This can be used as adjunct therapy. Gotcha. Yeah. It's definitely always very exciting when there's a new in-class medication, or at least for me, that may just be my history and really basic neuroscience coming out a little bit, but it's always very interesting for me, at least to hear some of these new developments, especially as there's usually a long time in some sort of pipeline before they actually become useful. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, movement disorders, neurologists keep a really close eye on the epilepsy drugs, you know, cause anything that calms down the, the nervous system could be, uh, could be good for movement disorders. So when Ficompa came out, we were like, Ooh, hmm, let's see if we can use this, <laughs> for example, as another first in class medication. Fair enough. Hey, we got to share the developments we have across the subspecialties. That's for sure. And, you know, this is, this is a uh, way out in left field, but you know, there are medications that are being looked at that are diabetes medications that are urinary retention medication, urology medications that are being looked at in Parkinson's disease. And so not for symptoms as much as for disease progression. And, you know, some of this will pan out and some of it won't, but it's, it's important, you know, Parkinson's it affects the whole body. And we could do a whole nother thing on all the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease and how to treat those, which is a whole different list of medications, right? You know, this is one of the reasons that I love being a movement disorders neurologist is because I'm super detail oriented. I, you know, and sometimes making an adjustment of just half an hour or one additional tablet in a day, you know, doing these little micro titrations of patients can mean the difference between them being functional and them being not functional. And if you're a detail oriented person who likes that kind of stuff, it's, this is the, this is the subspecialty for you. <laughs> no, most definitely. Some of the changes that I've seen, even just over really quick interval visits have been pretty dramatic when the medications work and there's right on time. It truly is really impressive. And sometimes, honestly, just, uh, you know, big picture, sometimes less is more. I have a lot of patients come to me from outside on boatloads of medicines and they're doing awful. They have dyskinesias, they're hallucinating, whatever else is going on. And I just peel them off, simplify everything over the course of a couple of visits and they feel so much better. So adding something is not necessarily always the answer. Especially when you have an armamentarium like this. Well, fantastic. I think this was a great discussion about the major medications that we consider for at least, as you stated, the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So we did discuss the main medication being Cinemat, Carbidopa, Levodopa, and it being a dopamine precursor. We talked about the dopamine receptor agonists, Premipexol, Rapinarol, Rotigotine, Apomorphine. We touched on some of the medications that essentially work to increase the amount of residual dopamine, be it the monoamine inhibitors and the COMP-T inhibitors like selegiline, risagiline, safinamide for the MAOIs, and tacopone and opicopone for the COMP-T inhibitors. And then some of these newer agents that maybe we don't see as much, or at least the anticholinergic agents that may predate a few of these, be it artane, so trihexaphenidyl amantadine, which has a little bit of mixed mechanism action, but definitely some anticholinergic 
and then benztropine in that class as well. And then we ended with a discussion on one of the newest ones, be it the adenosine A2A receptor antagonist, norians or istradefilin. Yeah, we covered a lot. That we did. And thank you again, as always, for all of your help. Absolutely. Absolutely.